We are looking this morning at John chapter 8, the latter part of John chapter 8, as we resume our sermon series in this great fourth gospel record. We have been in the gospel of John since uh, the beginning of summer, and we are continuing on, and we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 8. We're looking where we picked off last Lord's Day, where we left off, we're picking up again. We are looking at verses 31 all the way down to the end of the chapter, to verse 59, John 8, 31 to 59. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Remember, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, He has declared himself to be the one who can give living waters to the thirsty. He has also declared himself to be the light of the world. Those are big claims, as we've seen. If he is able to satisfy thirsty souls, he is able to enlighten those walking in darkness. And as he makes those gracious claims, the people hearing them, uh, most all of them, rage against him. Uh, We have seen throughout this account, beginning in chapter 7, that, uh, as someone has noted, Jesus has a tendency of bringing out the worst in people. Um, Jesus has a way of making people very angry, and yet his words are full of grace and compassion and redemption and healing. And so as the Jews are contending with him and the religious leaders there at the Feast of Tabernacles, we now read this in John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have only one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Notice that Jesus knows why they won't understand because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 
The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I am sure if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you have a favorite hymn or favorite hymns, and within those hymns, you have particular verses that you love, maybe because when you were newly converted, they spoke to you in a powerful way. There were hymns I couldn't get through without tearing up over what Christ had done for me um, and over what had happened in my life. And one of those hymns was Anne Janet B, that great hymn by Charles Wesley, arguably one of the greatest hymn writers in the English-speaking world. You've heard me mention Wesley to you in the past in this series, and you'll remember that Wesley was part of a club called the Holy Club, and he was exceedingly religiously zealous. He memorized scripture, he fasted, he prayed. He, he was part of a club called the Holy Club, and he was totally unconverted. And then God in his grace converted Wesley and I believe that John Wesley, or, sorry, Charles Wesley, when he wrote that great hymn, Anne Kennedy, included that verse about the experience of being converted. And he said, long, long I lay in prison. That great verse about being in prison, to sin in nature's night. And then he said, thine eye diffused. He said, the dungeon filled with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And I think that's one of the most powerful statements of what happens to a believer. Charles Wesley was not wild. He was not out there wildly living in open, wild rebellion. He was religious. He was devout. And yet he realized that he was in bondage. He realized that his soul was in bondage to sin. And then when Christ had mercy on him, he set him free. The chains fell off. My heart was free. He, he realized the freedom that Christ came to bring. Now, I tell you that, again, about Wesley and not him in particular, because now as Jesus is continuing this discourse, notice that he makes another one of those great statements. He has said, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He has said, I am the light of the world. And now he's going to make another claim. 
And notice what he says. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So great a statement. You'll see that verse misused in movies and television shows. People know, they know the the grandeur of that statement. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what Jesus is saying very simply is that he and he alone is able to set men free from the bondage of sin and nature's night. He and he alone can set men and women free from the, the condemnation of the law of God, from their bondage to sin, from the guilt of their sin, from the power of sin, that he can set them free to rise and go forth and follow him. Um, I want us this morning, as we consider this passage together, to consider three things. First, spiritual freedom in Christ. And I want us to consider spiritual sonship in Christ. And then spiritual, the spiritual identity of Christ. Spiritual freedom, spiritual sonship, and the spiritual identity of Christ. Well, notice, as I have said, Jesus now turns and addresses a group of people who have professed to believe in him. Notice verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to now further instruct them. And you'll you'll remember in the Gospel of John, there are true disciples and there are false disciples. Masses of people are following Jesus. Many people are professing to believe in him. And yet, as we saw back in chapter 6, that great multitude that were called the disciples went away. And Jesus was left with the eleven. Now, as he is again in this feast in Jerusalem, he is gaining a a crowd, and we're told many believed in him. He takes this opportunity to address those, notice verse 31, who had believed in him. And he does it by saying, you are truly my disciples. If you really want to know, if you are truly my disciple, here's here's the litmus test. Abide in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, there are many things in this one verse. I want us to just consider a couple. First of all, Jesus is distinguishing between true spiritual disciples and hypocrites. And the distinguishing mark is that true disciples abide, they remain in his word. Um, they, They read it often. They meditate on it. They want it to flood their minds and hearts. They they counsel themselves from it. They speak it to others. They go back to it when they have failed and fallen short and have sinned. They they love sitting under it. Um, Now, Jesus is not just talking about the the red letter words. I'm so thankful we don't do that anymore in our new Bibles. Because all of the scripture is the word of Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all Christ speaking through it. And it's all pointing to him. And and so when Jesus says, you would abide in my word, he's speaking about all the word of God. And and he's saying, a very powerful claim, he's saying it's my word. Think about that. He is claiming deity. We're going to see more of that. He is saying, I am the one who gave these words. Um, He'll say back in chapter 6, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. Um, They come as we've seen many times already. They come with all the divine authority of God. They come with the voice of the good shepherd. He'll say in chapter 10 of this book, 
that, that I'm the good shepherd. I, I call my own and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. True believers hear the voice of Christ when they read the scriptures. These are not, as Paul said, the words of men. These are, in truth, the very words of God that effectively work in people. Interesting, that's also why people hate them. So if you're among those people that, and there have been multitudes that hate the words of Christ, it's because they carry all the divine authority. And, and they cut to the very heart, right? Um, the writer of Hebrews will say God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Um, and yet, Jesus is saying, my true disciples, they remain in this means of grace. They remain in, in my word, and, and they love it, and it marks them. And, and then, notice, he, he gives a, a, a promise of spiritual freedom. He says, if you do that, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, let me say this this morning. That is true the first time that happens in your life, if that's happened in your life. You experience that, that, that freedom, and we'll talk about what that freedom is in a moment. But, but it's also something Jesus is saying is an ongoing thing. Isn't that interesting? He said, if you abide, if you remain in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what he's essentially saying is it will continue. The gospel will continue to be at work in you, leading you into more and more and more spiritual freedom. So this is what John Calvin said. He said, whatever progress any of us have made in the gospel, Christ gives us new additions because we need new additions. Isn't that interesting? Whatever progress we may have made in the gospel, we always need new additions. Calvin says, Christ impresses his word on our hearts by his spirit. He daily chases away from our minds the clouds of ignorance which obscure the brightness of the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? He, his word daily chases away the clouds of ignorance. So when people don't get the gospel, it's because they're ignorant. They hate it because they're ignorant. They don't get it because they're ignorant. And we, by nature, are ignorant. And we need the clouds of our ignorance blown away so as not to obscure the brightness of the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? Christ is saying, I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to... I'm going to flood your mind and heart with the truth of the gospel as you abide in my word, and I'm going to renew you constantly, and you're going to know spiritual freedom, and the Son is going to give you more and more and more of that freedom. Now, what is, he, what is this freedom? Well, we know it's not freedom to do what we want. Most people, and you know, sadly, you'll, you'll meet people who once profess faith in Christ, and then they abandon the faith, and they say, you know, basically, I, I've never been felt so free in my life. They, they're really in bondage. That's not freedom. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is beautiful, explains the liberty, the freedom that Christ purchases for us. They say this, they say it consists in freedom from the guilt of sin. So that's great. Who in here, I'm not going to give a show of hand, who in here, because we're Presbyterians, who in here, who in here has not felt the guilt of their sin? I mean, I feel guilty about everything, every day. And that's why I need the gospel. But Christ frees us from the guilt of our sin. 
Listen, he frees us from the condemning wrath of God. He frees us from the curse of the moral law. He delivers us from this present evil world, and it is an evil world, y'all. He delivers us from bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil, the evil of afflictions, not from afflictions, but the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. That's a lot of freedom. That's a lot of freedom. The Bible teaches all of that was purchased by Christ and is given to us in the gospel. The Westminster Assemblymen went on to say, the freedom also includes free access to God. Think about that. You can go straight to the throne of grace through, through Christ. Freedom. Free access to God. And yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. That's a, that's a great statement. All of that freedom is yours in Christ through the gospel. Um, I want us to consider the obstacles to spiritual freedom. I've touched on this. Why wouldn't everybody want that? Why, why would anyone want to live as a slave to sin, to the guilt of their sin, to the condemnation of God, to the prospect of eternal punishment. Why would anyone want to live in that? Um, and, and as we've noted, it's because of the blindness and the darkness. Remember in this chapter, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And, and so by nature, men are in darkness and, and they don't want to be led out by the truth to the light of the gospel. And they will do everything they can to remain in darkness. It's a sobering thought. They will spend energy remaining a slave to all the evils of this world. And, um, you know, it's interesting. The people in this chapter who do that are not out there rebelling wildly. These are religious people who think they don't have any sin. These are people that think they do not have sin. Um, think about that. They, they, they are walking in darkness, and they say to Jesus, notice this, they say, we're Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, which is an ironic statement. I've made this point, I think, in the past. Think about this. These are the Jewish people. They were in bondage to Egypt 2,000 years before. They were in bondage to the Babylonians in the exile, and they are presently enslaved to the Roman Empire. And they can literally say to Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. They are not just blind to their enslavement to sin. They can't even see anything clearly or right because they are so full of pride and self-righteousness. By the way, that is the great obstacle, is the pride that they have. How dare you tell us we're not good? How dare you tell us we don't have privileges? How dare you tell us that we need to be set free? Who do you think you are? That's the refrain throughout this whole, whole chapter. Who do you think you are? And notice Jesus now says to them in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I want us to consider very briefly spiritual sonship in Christ. Um, 
the doctrine of adoption is one of the most precious biblical doctrines and one that is almost among the most neglected. Um, Every one of us lives every day either as a slave or a son, an orphan or a son. Every single person lives as either a slave or a liberated son with all the privileges of the children of God. And remember, at the beginning of this book, John made that great declaration. In chapter 1, verse 12, he said that, that after saying his own people didn't believe in him, he came into the world, the world didn't receive him, he says, but as many as received him by faith, he gave the right to become children of God. This is amazing. When I look at you, and when you look at me, we should look at each other as children of God, sons and daughters of the living God, because that's what we are in Christ. If the Son has set us free, he has moved us from a position of servile, attempting to please God as in a slavish fear sense while being in bondage to sin, and he has made us children of the living God. Um, I've heard Sinclair Ferguson make this point, and, and he's right, that more often than not, our great hindrance to growing in grace is that we live far below the level of privilege that we already possess in Jesus. So when I forget that I am a son of God, I don't act like a son of God. I act like an orphan. Um, if we remember what we are in Christ, then we'll live in accord with what he has already made us to be. And so if the Son has set you free, you have received the spiritual adoption. But notice, no sooner has Jesus said that, that they ramp up their contention with him. Um, they tell him, Abraham's our father. He tells them, well, if Abraham is your father, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed. He trusted. He walked by faith. He obeyed. He was willing even to offer up Isaac by faith in the promise of redemption. He, he was looking to the Redeemer. He was hoping in Christ. How do we know that? This is, by the way, one of the greatest statements in the Bible. At the very end of this chapter, when they say, how can you tell us? that you are greater than Abraham? Or how can, how can you say something that makes us think you're saying you're greater than Abraham? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Think about that. Abraham lived 2,000 years before. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. Um, We'll come back to that in a moment. But what Jesus is saying is, if, if you are truly a son or a daughter of God, then you are truly a son and daughter of Abraham. And if you're truly a son or daughter of Abraham, he is your father because he is the father of all who have faith in him. And they hate him, and they mock him, and they reject him, and they, they scoff at him. And at the end of the chapter, they pick up stones to stone him because they know exactly what he's saying. Um, I, want, I want you to think about this just briefly. 
The Lord Jesus is so full of grace that when they basically say his mother had him out of fornicating, wed, out of wedlock through fornication, because when they say to him, we're not born of fornication, they're, they're trying to keep scorn on him. When, when they say to him, you have a demon on numerous occasions, and, and when they say to him, when they say to him, the hateful things that they say to him in this chapter, the Lord Jesus remains very calm. Isn't that interesting? He, he, he shows, I believe, who he is by his response to their animus and hostility. He remains very calm with them. And, and I think he does that for the simple reason that he knows, he knows the grip of the bondage that they are in to sin and darkness and ignorance. Um, he knows that they can't stand to receive his word and that by not understanding his word and not wanting to hear his word, they were just going further and further into their inability to understand him. Um, and yet, there's hope. I, w I want us to consider this. There, there is hope. Um, the Lord Jesus deals very long-suffering toward those who are in that kind of darkness. Isn't that good news? I, I think of my own years of rebellion and how long he bore with me through all the darkness that I lived in. Think about that for yourself, whether you were morally and religiously self-righteous or whether you were wild. It's all darkness. And he bears long in order to help people see their need to be set free and to become sons and daughters. There's something wonderful about that. Well, finally, I want us to consider what we've touched on, and that is the spiritual identity of Christ. And uh, you know this, that there are seven I am statements in John's gospel. Jesus says, in chapter 6, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In chapter 7, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the door. In chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, I am the true vine. He makes all those claims. But this is the most beautiful thing. Jesus summarizes all of those statements now. He distills them down. And in John 8, 58, turn there and look at that. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. The Greek is very, very straightforward that he chose these words in a very particular way because Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is God's covenant name. In English, we, we uh, Germanicize it and we, we say Jehovah um, whenever... Um, Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, you can tell them Jesus is Jehovah. He's claiming to be Jehovah. He is saying he is the covenant Lord. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And, and it simply means, and you know this probably if you've heard anything about this in Hebrew, it simply means I was that I was, I am what I am, I will be what I will be. I am the eternal, ever-existing God. The God in whom we live and move and have our being right now is eternally now. He never changes. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is self-sufficient in himself. 
By the way, that's why the bush burned but was not consumed. He is, he is the ever-living, consuming fire. And Jesus has the audacity to say, I am. And he can do that because he is that God. Now, here's what's interesting. There are many people today who deny that Jesus ever claimed deity. But what I want you to notice, notice verse 59. The last verse of this chapter shows that the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Notice this. They picked up stones to throw at him. That was the punishment for blasphemy. They knew that he was claiming to be Yahweh. They understood exactly what he was saying. And instead of saying, how could God come into this world? How could the God that makes my heart beat? How could the God against whom I have sinned so many times, how could he come into this world and he's telling me that he's come to bring redemption and he's come to set captives free and he's come to give light and life and he's come to give water to thirsty souls. Instead of saying, how could that be? Instead of singing with Charles Wesley, and can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Instead of that, they want to stone him. Think of that. They know what he's saying. But their hatred for him is such that they want to rid themselves of him. You know, this is a hard chapter. It, I, I came to this sermon and I thought, this is not going to be comforting. There is lots of comfort in this chapter. But this is a hard chapter because it really is setting out for us the consequences of rejected truth. And this morning we have to grapple with the fact, have I heard the voice of Jesus in scripture, and if I have, what has my response been to it? Am I desiring to abide in it so that I show myself to be a true disciple? Am I desiring to follow him and to know more of the freedom that the truth gives? Or am I rejecting it and thinking I'm fine without Christ? That's, that's the great dichotomy, that's the great dilemma presented before us. You, you, only you can answer that question. But you've got to answer that question. Um, and and if, if you've never come to Christ, if you just want this to be over and done, I would beg you to realize the consequences of rejected truth. Greatest privileges in the world if you will come to him. Forgiveness of sins, freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from the fear of death, enormous privileges. But if you reject him, Jesus says you will die in your sins, and you have everything to fear. I'm going to say that as forcefully as I can. If you reject Jesus, you have everything to fear, because you are rejecting the great I am. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Um, one well-known preacher of the 20th century used to say, just as there are signs on fences, beware of dog. When we come into places where God's word is read and preached faithfully, there should be a sign, beware of God. Because we're not trifling with truth. You will either know the truth and it will set you free or you will perish forever. 
Now, for those of you who are trusting in Christ, you've got to rise to the knowledge of the level of the privileges that are already yours. You can't work for them. You can't read your Bible enough to get them. That's not how it works. We abide in the Lord because we're trusting in the Savior, and we love him, and we want to know more of him. We can't merit those privileges. He has already done all that for you. If you're in the, if you're in the Son, you are a son and daughter. And that means you've got to remind yourself, I am a child of God, and therefore I want to walk and live as becomes a child of God. I desperately need to remember that in my own life. And I am certain that you need to remember that in yours. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these words. We thank you that they are spirit and life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are speaking in them and through them. We thank you that before Abraham was, you are the great I am. You are the eternal God, that in you all things consist, that you carry along this world by the word of your power. We thank you that this day you are calling us to abide in your word, to follow you, to believe in you, to trust you. We pray that you would make each and every man and woman, boy and girl in this place, to know the spiritual freedom that you came to give through your death on the cross. We pray that we would know the freedom from the guilt of our sin and the power of sin. We know freedom from the curse of the law and from the judgment to come, from death itself. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us to know in truth all that you have accomplished for your people. We pray these things in your name. Amen.